Hello and welcome to the Baltic Triangle podcast, featuring some of the most innovative movers and shakers in the Liverpool City region, with me, Mick Ord. And me, Mark Reeson. At least as far as this podcast is concerned, we're still in lockdown, so we're doing today's interview via Zoom, as has been the case on the last three occasions. So Mick, how have you been over the last few weeks then? Have you managed to get out to a pub or a restaurant? Have you been doing lots and lots of walks in the country? Yeah, doing a bit of cycling, avoiding the pubs and the restaurants now. I'm still among the people that think, do I really need a bevy that much when I've got the bottles in the fridge? So probably leave it for the moment. But I've realised that all the businesses need our money. So we are going to have to go out at some time, I guess, mate. What about you? Yeah, I've ventured into town a few times. I've had a couple of meetings. I sat out on uh, on Bold Street yesterday and had a meeting with someone uh, outside a coffee shop. Um, what was it, it like? It was good. Uh, it was nice. Uh, the weather was a bit hot and cold, but um, yeah, it was okay. I mean, I quite like the idea of that kind of cafe society. I'm very bohemian, obviously. Um, but yeah, it, it was nice, to be honest. It was nice to get out and about. And uh, and like you said, it was. It, we really do need to maybe start thinking about trying to at least get out and spend a bit of uh, time with uh, with people in, in environments in the city centre, for sure. Don't like footy on the telly, though, at the moment, do you? I think it's really interesting the way they just press buttons and make the crowd noises. Uh, In some ways, if you're not actually watching the football and you're doing something else while it's on, uh, it's really hard to notice the difference, to be honest. Unless the guys or the girls particularly slow on the button pushing, uh, then it could be quite hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm sticking to me radio for the live games. I can't get free on Amazon Prime or Sky or whatever, you know. Well, Mark, before we hear from today's guest on the Baltic Triangle podcast, I'll just mention our partners in the podcast, Baltic Broadband. A big thank you to them for partnering us. Baltic Broadband provide ultra-fast internet to businesses that keeps your broadband running fast at all times. They're a Merseyside-based business who offer 24-7 customer service that's secure and reliable, and we'll hear more about them a little bit later. Well, Mick, today's guest is actually talking to us from a well-earned break in Spain after a crazy couple of months working in the front line against COVID at Whiston Hospital, Merseyside. Yeah, joining us direct from the hotel somewhere in Spain, we won't inquire where, is Dr. Edward Lynch, a junior doctor from Whiston Hospital on Merseyside, who's also, with a colleague, set up a health and well-being company based in Liverpool called Life, L-Y-F-E which they say provides people with the tools they need to harbour a healthy life. We'll hear more about the Life app a little bit later. We certainly will. Well, hi, Edward. And firstly, let me take this opportunity to say a big thank you to you and to all your NHS colleagues for all the hard work and dedication that you put in during the pandemic. I must just say from us and everybody else, it's really greatly appreciated. So um, how are things with you right now? And um, I know you're away taking a break, so let's just find out a little bit more about where you are and what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So we had a lot of annual leave accrued because of the COVID period, which is why I'm in Spain. Um, don't worry, I've, I've come with a plethora of masks. They're all, they're all here. Um, I wouldn't get on a plane without one. So, um, yeah, it, it's been a bit crazy recently because during the COVID period, we went, we went onto a, an emergency rotor. So we, we can't just work flat, flat out the entire time. So now that COVID's slowed down a little bit, there's a lot of doctors taking annual leave. And if anything, we're, the guys on the ward who are left there are, are busier than ever because there's so many of us now having to take annual leave because we, we were in the position where they were saying, well, you either take your annual leave 
now or you lose it because it won't carry on. You do like you do four four month blocks. So in this last four month block, it changed slightly due to COVID, but essentially by the end of that, we'd have lost all the holiday. Hence why I'm in Spain. <laughs> you were really thrown in the deep end a little bit, weren't you, for the first year of your foundation? Um, give us a little run through of what that might have been like for you. Yeah, sure. So my first rotation was in cardiology and. You typically have two pathways. You've got medicine and you've got surgery. And for me, I find medicine more difficult because the, the road is more grueling. Uh, you do more on calls, more nights, and the actual problems you've come across. Are, I'll, I'll be told off by the surgeons first, but typically they're the more confusing because, you know, you, you get an older patients with a whole list of comorbidities and, you know, there's a lot going on. So I started on cardiology, which was a medical job, and it was – it was quite thrown in the deep end kind of thing. And then over, I swapped over to surgery in December. And then we started seeing the reports of coronavirus in over in China. And then, you know, the reports of it, of it growing massively in Italy. So at that point, we were like, should the government be doing anything about this? Making sure that we start controlling flights or, and there was quite a lot of concern within the healthcare teams about, trying to control the virus in England before it kicked off because you know what it's like. It has a huge proclivity to spread. So, you know, nipping it in the bud before it actually gets there is the most effective way to stop it. So we were all just a bit like, well, what's going on? And what the hospital decided to do because there was no real guidance on, you know, medicine's very much guidance-based. There's only so much science that we can, we're trying to learn as much as we can, but, only through guidance can we actually direct appropriate management. And obviously, because COVID is a very novel thing, we didn't have any guidance to go off. So with that came a lot of trial and error. And it was a little bit of panic. I'm not going to lie. There was a little bit of panic. And we were just trying to work out what the most effective system was to ensure patient safety, essentially. So what the hospital decided was, to keep everybody on their current jobs. So as I mentioned earlier, we do the four month rotations rather than swapping us to our new rotation. They actually kept us on. So we, we, we all stayed in our current jobs because you, you become more effective within that field as instead of rotating and you're in a whole new environment because you're familiar with everything. We all stayed on. So, but I, at that time, I was on surgery, so I actually loved surgery. So they kept us on that for about another seven weeks. And then then they decided to swap us. So then I moved full-time onto a, a COVID ward, which was, yeah, it was very interesting. I, th- I think the, the hardest part of the work was, as I'm sure you guys know now, wearing the masks. If you happen to wear an F- FFP3 mask, which is one of these, um, you know, it's the, it's, the really, it's the really tight ones rather than the surgical masks, which are those. Um, we can get into the masks in a bit, if you like, because it, it's a topic it's a topic that winds me up a little bit. But yeah, I think one of the hardest parts of work was the PPE and the, and the heat. Uh, we had a week where it was pretty much 26 degrees throughout the entire week. And... Um, the ventilation wasn't great. We haven't got aircon in the hospital, really. We've got we've got airflow, but not aircon. So when you've got that on, you've got a boiler suit, you've got your mask, the visor. Oh, it's just so hot. And it's like a lot of the things that you're doing 
some of them are course tasks. Some of them are examinations. You don't have to be exact. But say if you're trying to get a line in, if somebody's got really small veins, it's not a, it's it's hard enough with one pair of gloves on. But when you're when you're completely covered and you've got sweat dripping down your back and yeah, it was it was really difficult. Apart from the physical demands, I think emotionally we had well, unfortunately we lost a couple of nurses and and doctors at Whiston. Whether or not it's preventable, uh, preventable from the PPE side. Yeah, it's it's a hard topic to approach, really, because had we had appropriate PPE, we might not have lost those people, you know. And um, especially when they've devoted their lives to just helping others, it is a bit of a kick in the teeth. And um, but then if the supply isn't there, you know, it's it's a national issue, and it's not the trust's fault at all. But I do think it would have been nice if we were more prepared, you know, if we'd have. I think Obama came out in about 2015, didn't he? I don't know. I don't know whether you've seen this. I think he came out and he said, um, it, "It's due. It's about time that we're going to have a big respiratory outbreak." Um, and he started piling a bit of money into, you know, um, prevention masks, PPE, um, setting up field hospitals, that kind of thing. I mean, the trust reacted really, really nicely. One of the orthopaedic surgeons was paraded around the hospital. It was a lovely send-off, but I I can't help but think we could have stopped it. Do you think if there's a second wave, you are much better prepared for that? Yeah, absolutely. We've had, on, on so many levels, Mick, because we've had data to actually go off now as well. So we know escalation plans as well we know which patients are suitable for full escalation there's a lot of learning that goes on even in terms of putting on masks appropriately for an example donning and doffing full ppe has its own process Um, if somebody goes into a cardiac arrest there's a whole new algorithm that we have to follow and you know these aren't um in theory you'd think oh that's quite simple but in in high stress situations when you've got a team of say 15 people all running in to try and treat a patient, it's kind of organized chaos. And when the guidelines are changing so quickly, it's really, really hard to keep that that team organized and patient focused. So yeah, I think on, on, on many different levels, we're certainly more prepared both in terms of supply of PPE, but also education and and data to go off for patient care. I think you've seen recently that the Oxford um, vaccine trial does produce uh, an immune response. They haven't released much data on it. I'm trying to keep. I'm part of the trial, so I had the. I was randomised to one of two groups, but they've they've came out and they've said that it does produce an immune response. So that's great as well. If we can take more. If, It'll take a little, more, a little bit more time. But if we can get that data together and actually release a vaccine to the public as well, that, that's only going to help. We move on to the, the mental health organisation that you've set up, LIFE, L-Y-F-E, because there's been a lot of talk over the lockdown about the effect it's had on people's mental health. Now, you set this organisation up nearly a year ago. Can you just talk us through why you set it up and what work you've been doing? So this actually goes back a a number of years now. I was kicked out of medical school about three years ago. And essentially what happened was we, me and the university fell out because they said that I had failed one of my practical exams. And I said, well, based on what 
information you've given me because you get feedback on what how you've done and from the feedback I could tell that it didn't quite match how I thought I'd performed because it was quite specific it was it, it was in regard to a prescribing station this is one of the one of the nuances of of I appealed the exam that which they said I failed and this is one of the nuances of that appeal they said I prescribed a drug in a certain way and I was like well I've never ever done that and I've always prescribed it this way so I was like this this categorically can't have been what I've done. So anyway, we, we, we fell out and um, I was kicked out of medical school for about eight months. One of, the, one of the precipitating factors to this was that I was out in Mongolia at the time, completing another part of the course called elective. So when I was out in Mongolia, when we had this little bit of an argument with the university, you know, some days because I was in the outback kind of thing. Some days I didn't even have running water or electricity, never mind Wi-Fi to, to communicate. So I couldn't, I didn't submit my formal appeal to the university within the given time frame. Um, so as a result, I was kicked out. And then we had about, and I got I then returned back from Mongolia. And then there was about an eight month period where I was trying to fight to get back into the medical school. And during that eight month period, I didn't think it would happen, to be honest, because mental health has never been something that I struggled with. But during that period, um, I started noticing things about my own head and the way I process information and thoughts that would come up. And I, I, I delved deep into my own brain and started reflecting a lot. And then I tried to then educate myself about what I could do to improve my mental health in this period, because I noticed that it was getting worse. Which is completely fine and normal, by the way. We all we all struggle with mental health from time to time. Even on a on a daily basis, we have mood mood swings and emotions, which is a sort of micro level of the overall scale of of mental health. So, yeah, I started trying to educate myself about what I could do to look after my mental health in a preventative fashion. And actually, when I was engaging with that, I couldn't find any easy to access resources. And I thought, well, I can't be the only person out here struggling with this kind of thing. Of course, everyone's situation is different and it's, it's, it's hard to understand everybody's situation. But equally, we're all going to be struggling in some form with our mental health. So I thought this is just, this is just so bizarre that there's nothing out there to preventatively help you look after your mental health. So this is kind of where it started, the whole journey of creating life, because had I not taken the time to look at psychology and delve deep into it, because I was interested in it anyway, studying to be a doctor. So I really took eight months to firstly appeal the university exam and secondly, learn as much psychology as I could. So then I just thought, well, we've got to make this more accessible for more people. And then I got back, I got myself back into med medical school after, after a long after that eight-month period, um, the the girl I was seeing at the time was fortunately training to be a barrister, so she was she taught me how to present myself at, at, at Senate. So I had to go to Senate and I had to present uh, all of my case, and then got myself back into medical school, and it was deemed unfair um, and that the decision was incorrect. So then I was back into medical school, um, and then that summer, one of my colleagues from high school from secondary school he he killed himself that summer and he was he was a high-flying student 
he did three years and then he was on he was on doing his masters and he actually got a, he got a, he got a distinction in his masters before it was even uh, possible to do so because the university were like this work is so good he got the distinction before he finally submitted it anyway he he submitted his dissertation and he two days later he killed himself and that was for me kind of the straw on the camel's back because I thought with with the eight months that I'd just gone through um, and what had happened to him I just thought this must be so many people out there who, who need an easy to access resource to look after the mental health and that was the underpinning principles of the creation of life um it, it wasn't always called life but that is where it that's where the story begins so from that point forward i contacted my school and i just said look can i help out your current sixth form student base who are going to university life to show them the support networks they have around them to talk to them about basic mental health principles because it's not it's not rocket science it's a bit like physical health and diet there are very easy things that we can do to look after our mental health. And I'd love to see it in the, in the education sector being taught about this because we get PE. So certain schools are introducing like cooking classes and how to do your washing and things like that. Life skills. It would be good to see alongside PE, academia, life skills. It'd be good to see also some mental health education there as well. So yeah, I just approached the school and said, look, what can I do? to try and help your current student base with where I'm at in life. And they said, yeah, sounds great. Let's give it a go. So started off with an assembly. I was crapping myself. I've never done any public speaking at all. So yeah, I went in and spoke to about 200 students and it went down really well. So we did another one for the for the year 13s then as well. And it just sort of snowballed. The teacher was like, oh, this was great. And then we did a teacher session. And then well, I say we, because at this point, there was quite a lot going on. So we got a, a, a few of the guys on board. Um, and then, yeah, it just snowballed. And then we started approaching um, corporations in Liverpool and said, look, you know, we're, we're doing mental health and well-being. Can we, can we try and help educate your staff about what they can do to not only optimise their performance, but look after their mental health and well-being? And they're like, yeah, sounds great. So there's a number of issues, really. We... If you look at the general scope of where we're at in the UK, we focus on two things. We focus on awareness, mental health awareness, and we focus on treatment. I'm not sure they're the most effective. In fact, they aren't the most effective ways of dealing with mental health. In the same way of physical health, if you treat somebody's brain, their mental health as a leg, why, why are we letting people break their legs or break their minds before we treat it because it's much more cost effective and effective for the individual if we just stop them from breaking their leg or their mind in the first place because if everyone's doing something which is an easy fix and it's causing broken legs all of the time we go well we'll just stop that from happening rather than having to you know cast somebody in and they're out for eight months and then they don't go to work and then all of these social issues precipitate from that and then it actually compounds and gets a lot worse so Prevention is a much more effective intervention than awareness and treatment. And we're kind of plugging that gap with life. And that's that's the the underpinning ethos of, of where we come from. There's a, there's a couple of other reasons why we want to create a piece of tech. And it comes down to geographical discrepancies in terms of what services you can ac- access as a person in the UK. So my colleague who 
killed himself. He was down in Bristol. And we know there aren't many resources out there to access, but actually in terms of his service provision as well down in Bristol, it wasn't as good as it could have been. So I thought, you know, had he been elsewhere in the UK geographically, that might not have happened. And I thought addressing these geographical discrepancies was something I became quite passionate about because it's not your fault where you're born. Um, So therefore creating a piece of tech, you know, tech isn't biased towards where you are. It's just, have you got access to the internet? So that was another reason why we wanted to produce a tech-based solution along with the time constraints of being a junior doctor too. So yeah, life, life's a, it's a, it's an overall health and well-being brand essentially. And we, we do also have an app, which I can download as of today, by the way, it's, we've just got confirmation that it's, it's, um, it's done. So we've got a bit of user testing to do, and then we'll be launching it in about um, eight to 10 weeks. Essentially what it does is it allows our users to engage with medically backed healthy activities, which improves their complete health. So it's all based around things that will make you optimize your health as much as possible whilst making the access to those things really, really simple and easy. So the whole, the whole app based around, um, increasing the discoverability of healthy things around you and then trying to persuade you to do it. Um, and all of the things in there are based on quite a lot of underpinning medical research too. So, um, this is addressing another one of our concerns that the whole health and wellbeing industry is kind of unregulated. Um, there's a lot of, I've been told off for using this word before, but cowboys, there's a lot of people out there who just be like, Oh yeah, well I'll, I'll become a, a, a wellness instructor or wellbeing instructor. It's like, well, no, <laughs> you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to do some courses or educate yourself appropriately in order to do that. So we're trying to make sure that it's safe and, and standardized as well. Yeah, so that's kind of what the life app is. And you also work with businesses too, don't you, Edward? Can you give us some examples of how you might do that? Yeah. So carrying on from the work at the schools, we started just networking in Liverpool and seeing how we could help out the corporations. So we've we've started creating and have already created wellbeing charters, um, like a checklist of things that businesses can do to optimise wellbeing in, in the workplace. Um and then alongside that also go in and deliver well-being days for the staff. And it's it you can receive, you can just pick a standard package, but it's not necessarily something that we would recommend as the needs of the company are always very bespoke. Um in the same way that a patient would present to hospital, you know, if we if we gave them the, all the same treatment or all the same advice, it wouldn't work. We need we need to take their story on board and and see what needs they have. So yeah, that that's kind of what we do. So say if say if a number of the staff are struggling with anxiety, we would then deliver a, a 45 minute session or an hour session on dealing with anxiety and how you can overcome it. We like half day workshops because they seem to work quite well. We sometimes do lunch bites, but what you find is people just want to eat the lunch and have a have a rest because uh, th- there is quite a lot of information in there. So, yeah, I think, you know, doing from like nine o'clock in the morning until 12 with a couple of breaks in between sessions works quite well. Or um, if you want to stay behind after work, it's all a bespoke service and we try and tailor it as much as we can to the corporation. Um, But yeah, that's that's the other side of life. So we have 
we have the, the well-being days, the, the bespoke service, which is really time intensive. Um, and and then due to the, the time constraints, geographical discrepancies, that's where we, we've built on the tech side. And how can you help individuals who maybe aren't part of a company or an organisation that actually buys into life? You know, if I'm someone that hasn't got much money, is that a gap in the market that you can fill or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So life is free to download for anybody. Um, so whoever you are, wherever you are, you can download the Life app. Now, we haven't quite got it to the point where we want it to be because we're doing we're doing a multiple stage of launches of the apps we're doing a couple of soft launches where it's going to be tested quite rigorously by small numbers of users to ensure that all of the features are there and it all works but it's only in liverpool for now because we haven't built we haven't built all of what we need to in order to scale across the country yet but you know in about four months time we're going to tackle manchester then after that we're doing leeds and birmingham then after that we go down to london and then hopefully by that point uh, the, the people who are offering these services will automatically sign up to life and we'll have a team to onboard them appropriately. So for now, it is slow and we are building slowly, but we hope if if the app is where we want it to be and it is as effective as we want it to be, it will grow organically. So in answer to your question, yes, anybody can engage with us, hopefully. Uh, can you give us some example of the sort of um, mental health issues that you're expecting to see as a, as a direct result of, of, of post-COVID, shall we say? Yeah, sure. We had a number of nurses who became unwell with COVID. And at that point, it was, it was, it was clear that the emotional impact of, of the healthcare was, it really affected the staff who were treating the other nurses because our nurses became impatient on our own wards and some of them were so unwell. And then the other, you know, the nurses and doctors would see that and be like, and then you, you walk in with one of these surgical masks and you're like, well, that could be me. So I think there's um, a lot of PTSD at the moment um, we've seen PTSD rates spike and we, we see a lot of trauma anyway. You know, we have to deal with death on a daily basis and unwell patients and blood trauma. Um, but I think due to the way Corona hits, it has a larger emotional impact on people. So yeah, we're already seeing a, quite a big spike in PTSD presentations amongst NHS staff already so I mean we, we hear warnings from various august medical institutions about there being a tsunami of mental health problems and if you're sitting at home wondering that you're thinking well are they exaggerating or is it really going to be like that yeah I think the, t the topic's huge I think we could talk about this alone for a couple of hours but let's take an example of bereavement when, when somebody's father or mother dies the family want to be there with them. And when the pandemic first kicked off, our guidelines were that you couldn't see them. And, you know, the last time you could, the last time you could have seen your, your mum or your dad might not be in the situation that you, you would have expected to, to, to be in that place. So it's just, that impact on people is, is huge. And you, you I, I literally can't understand 
because it hasn't happened to me, I don't know what it would feel like, but I could only imagine it would be terrible. Um, and seeing the impact that it has had on people is is dreadful. And, you know, I've had to tell so many families over the phone that they've, that the mum or the dad has died and trying to deal with that, not even face-to-face, over the phone is is terrible. It has changed a little bit. Families can come in to see their them there are other family members now but it's it's they've got to come in in PPE and strict number it's limited numbers um but that, in terms of mental health in that aspect you know closure they don't they can't partition some people struggle to partition that aspect of their life because it hasn't it hasn't ended in a way which it's not an optimal way to end it of course death is never nice but there are nice way nicer ways to deal with, through that process and I think COVID has made it so much more difficult to ensure that that happens. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's not nice at all. And and CPR as well. A lot of families say, oh, please, can you try CPR, please? And it comes down to that closure aspect as well of like, they want to see that everything's being done to help their family as much as possible. And that will really help them close that period off. But yeah, it must be so difficult. But I think you can see from that one example the, the kind of impacts that would have on a family unit. And, you know, dealing with grief is hard at the best of times. And then when you when you compound it with something like COVID, which has perhaps for your family aspect removed the dignity of that death. So difficult. So difficult. I mean, obviously, you've also got that very strange anomaly in in this situation as well, where you've had a lot of people seemingly suffering from COVID symptoms and COVID itself at home. You didn't didn't make it to hospital, didn't get tested, didn't get you know. So you've had that as well, and that'll have a massive impact on on whole portions of the population that that aren't on anyone's list. Yeah, yeah, and and care homes as well. Exactly. I think a lot of people will be frustrated at the government that we didn't um, deal with it as well as we could have done. So then you've got compounding anger and frustration, uh, resentment maybe. And I just think when, when you actually look at the whole picture, you're like, wow, that is, of course, there's going to be mental health issues here. And then social isolation as well, when people are at home, dealing with things virtually, um, having to use more tech, less interpersonal relationships. It's just how far do we go? I think every single thing that has happened, we genetically, we're not built to deal with this. You know, we're very social animals. We like to be around other people. I, I live with another doctor and he went he went back home before, before it all kicked off properly because he was worried that the, the social isolation would get to him. And therefore I was I was by myself for about... 12 weeks I think I've lived by myself for about 12 weeks and it's not nice it really is not nice um and unless you can keep yourself occupied I've just tried to read as many books as possible keep on top of my physical go to work you know uh, meditate eat well so I think but without, without routine and structure if you've been furloughed for example and then you're alone at least I got to go to work and be around people, you know? Yeah, yeah. So if you would, just briefly, um, if you were to look forward a couple of years, how would you hope that life, and I better spell it in case people want to look you up, it's L-Y-F-E. 
if you were to look forward a couple of years, how would you want to see life develop? We've got quite big plans to try and standardise the wellbeing industry across the UK. We want to ensure that people can look after their mental health in a completely new way, focused on prevention, because prevention is the key. As with all healthcare, it, it reduces the NHS budget and it's more effective for the individual. Um, we really want to hammer home the prevention of mental health issues. So the way we do this is with the with the focus on the complete health. So ideally, we want to get life across the UK, the, the tech-based solution across the UK. Um, and then we, we want to turn it into a, a kind of social healthy media marketplace um, where people can only any anything on there is healthy so you know that so for example you could buy green tea on there or you could buy um, you could access vegan foods or you could access gym classes and it's all within this healthy marketplace that that is the that is the three-year goal with this Um, and then you get like special rewards if you bring people with you on this healthy journey because the more people we get in on this together the better so let's say you get five of you to go to a gym class together well great you get a reward within the app for doing that uh so it's constantly about like rewarding people for living a healthy lifestyle and we're part way there we're getting there um version one of the app as i said i can now download it on my phone today and there's a lot of testing that's going to happen and then we have it goes up to v5 so there's four iterations that we need to build on top of this in order to get to that goal and then beyond that we want to move into wellness real estate because after we've dealt with the that habitual side of health people's habits how people live um, we then want to tackle the actual physical environment. So we want to move into well-being real estate, which is an upcoming area. Um, as an example, your brain, the way we regulate melatonin in the brain um, is, a, is directly proportional to the amount of UV light that, that we have. So building houses with adequate natural, natural lighting is something that we're passionate about. And that's just one example. So we, there'd be like of course um water but it'd be like special purified water with like greenery in the house adequate lighting um it'd be carbon neutral so we want to we want to move into this this upcoming realm of um sustainable well-being real estate um you know building houses with electric charging ports for your car for example and things like that so um that's kind of our five-year goal. That we're, we're a long way off that, but you can see the cat, where we're moving to. Can you give us some idea of how we can keep up to date with your app and your developments, and, and give us some of your web addresses and your social media stuff? Yeah, sure. So we are the Life Club, and that, that's life with a Y. So the Life Club. That's what we're on on Instagram, and the website is thelifeclub.co.uk. Um, you can actually pre-sign up to the app on there and get onto our mailing list so we we'll send you out some some updates as to what's going on um i'm currently on holiday so we aren't that active <laughs> but once we're back um we're, we're quite active on linkedin as well as 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 people so i'm i'm down as edward lynch on on linkedin and, and toby the other co-founder he's down as tobias fox um, so if you follow our LinkedIn's, we post a lot about um, COVID updates, research updates, life updates. Yeah, I mean, you can follow us on LinkedIn if you like. 
follow us on Instagram and have a look at the website. How important is it for you to be in, in this region? I mean, does it matter to you that you are putting this on the market, putting it out to the world from Merseyside, from our region? Yeah, you know what? I, I've always loved Liverpool. and I, I love Scousers and Merseyside. And I think we, we do have, well, we have the worst health inequalities across the UK. And I think what a great story it would be if we could address that with a tech, a Liverpool tech startup. I just think it'd be great. And I think, I, I like, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a red as well. So what's the footy? And I think it'd just be boss to... Um, to keep keep the headquarters in Liverpool and help get a few jobs going and yeah I just want to create this little healthy community with the headquarters in Liverpool I think be boss well Mick that was a fascinating insight into uh, the life of someone who's been right there at the front line of COVID-19 um, amazing stuff there from Edward and really exciting to hear about his uh, app and his uh, his venture coming out in Liverpool yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine being a junior doctor? He only qualified about 13 months ago and being thrown into COVID. And he's come up with this um, well-being business, this health and well-being business. It's, uh, it's inspirational, but it also shows you that we're living through one of the most amazing times ever. And on the negative side, you've got all the people who be ill and died from COVID and everyone worried about a second wave. But on the positive side, you've got people like him with a tech startup like that, that's really going to hopefully um, really move the region forward and improve the the mental and physical well-being of so many people. Yeah, I mean, an amazing journey for the the guy as well. I mean, you know, he's obviously, he was kicked out. He had an appeal that he won, um, you know, and and, and now he's gone through, as you say, all this stuff recently, only to come out with with, uh, the positivity of, 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 of launching this app. Well, Mark, the Baltic Triangle podcast is brought to you, as you know, in partnership with Baltic Broadband. They supply ultra-fast internet to businesses, challenging the status quo via wireless internet, keeping your broadband running fast at all times. Baltic Broadband is a Merseyside-based company with a first-class 24-7 support service, not a large, faceless corporation that charges high amounts for low speeds and poor service. Baltic Broadband sources 75% of their procurement locally, from small to medium-sized businesses based in the Liverpool City region. So you can enjoy faster internet at half the price. That's Baltic Broadband. Right, Mark? Um, if anyone's got any ideas for future podcast interviews, they've just got to email us, haven't they? They have indeed. Our email address is info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. That's info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. And um, we really do appreciate any tips, hints, suggestions for anybody that you think would be interesting for us to talk to. And also, if you can subscribe and give us some feedback, that's also greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's done via your usual provider, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, or whoever it is. That's just about it from us this time around. And as always, we really appreciate you joining us here. So until next time, stay safe and all the very best from us. Yeah, and we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Bye-bye.